0: As you are being seated please turn with me to John chapter 17. Very early in my uh, my kids' lives they began asking challenging theological questions. So daddy who wrote the bible? Well, kids, actually there were multiple human authors over the course of about 1,500 years, and it wasn't just the human authors that wrote the Bible. God's Spirit was speaking to them and through them, and so he was speaking through their language and culture and vocabulary, but it was actually the Spirit of God speaking out through them. So we call that inspiration of "stapnustos" in Greek. Is it true? (laughs) Daddy, is the Bible true? How do you know it's true? How do you know the disciples didn't just make all this stuff up? Literally, they asked me that. Is the devil real? Is the devil here right now? Is the devil listening to our conversation? Does the devil know what I'm thinking? Daddy, why do we worship three gods? I thought you said there's just one God, but in Sunday school, they said we worship God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That sounds to me like three gods, but you said it's one God. So, Dad, which is it? Is it three or is it one? A couple of observations. Uh, kids are very literal often in their thinking, right? And Theology can often be abstract, but kids are very literal. I remember when I was a kid in Sunday school, Sunday school teacher said that I needed to ask Jesus into my heart. And I thought to myself, how can he fit, right? How can Jesus fit inside here? Maybe he's real small. And I began to imagine Jesus as a very small person and he had a little room somewhere in my body And he sat on a small chair, right? Very literal in our thinking. Now, at the same time, uh, kids can often tolerate more ambiguity and mystery than adults are willing to tolerate. That's why Jesus said, if you want to come to me, just come like a child. Just trust me. Childlike faith. And our faith, on the one hand, needs to be, be very simple and trusting in God. But at the same time, we need to be deep in our understanding Of who God is because he has revealed himself to us and he wants us to know him as he is. If we need to be deep in one area, we need to be deep in the Trinity because the Trinity is fundamental to the nature of God. This is who God is. He's a a Trinitarian God. We need to understand God and we really need to understand uh, why does it matter that God is Trinitarian and God is not other than Trinitarian? If you're going to read one book on the Trinity, uh, I suggest that you read a book by Michael Reeves. Uh, It's called Delighting in the Trinity. Uh, In my personal opinion, it's the only book on the Trinity that I didn't find actually boring, right? And I would think that the Trinity should be pretty exciting and dynamic. So one book on the Trinity, read this one. In the introduction, he said this, What is the Christian life about? Mere behavior or something deeper? Our churches, our marriages, our relationships, our mission are all molded in the deepest way by what we think of God. And all of our lives, in a sense, are lived in the context of relationships. And there's one set of relationships that governs all of our relationships. And that's the relationship that existed between Father, Son, and Spirit for all of eternity, right? That's the model for how we live in relationship to others, and all of life is in relationship. So in a sense, the Trinity itself governs all of life. That's why it's relevant. So this morning, what I want to do is we're going to look at the meaning of the Trinity and why it matters. What does it mean that God is a triune God? And why does that matter in our own lives? Now, sometimes I find it helpful to uh, look at other religions and see what they believe and compare that and contrast it to what I believe and that kind of helps me have a deeper understanding of my own sense of who God is. So for about a billion people in the world or more, God is not one, but God is many. Right? That's polytheism. Largest polytheistic religion is Hinduism. In Hinduism, there are over 300 million gods. Can you imagine? I wonder, do they all even know each other? Right? Have, they all, have they all met? Do they interact? We do know that they don't always get along. Right? They are not one in personality and one in purpose. In fact, they're often in conflict with one another. There is no unity in this pantheon of gods in polytheism. Which, from my way of thinking, I'd like to know that they all know one another, that they all like one another, that if they're going to have an influence on my life and on the influence of the history of the world, that they're all moving in the same direction and that direction is good, but you can't find that in polytheism. There is no sense of unity. For over a billion other people, God is one and God is only one. This is strict monotheism. The largest religion that represents this strict monotheism is Islam. It solves the problem of disunity in the Godhead because God is just one. It says in the Quran, "...He is Allah, the one and only, Allah, the eternal absolute. He begets not, nor is he begotten, and there is none like unto him." Allah is unified because Allah is one and He is the only one. Which we're left with another problem. How can such a God love us? According to tradition, there are 99 names for Allah. One of those is Allah the Loving. But how does Allah know how to love? Think about this for a moment. Before creation, what was Allah doing? Well, he was alone. He was absolutely and utterly alone. There was nothing and there was no one. But what is love? Well, love is outward. Love is toward another. But there was no one and nothing for Allah to love. So he had to create in order to learn how to love. Or if I can state it differently, love is not natural for Allah. It's not a part of his intrinsic nature. For us as Trinitarians, we believe that God is one it is. there's unity in the Godhead, but God is also three. That is, by God's nature, God is relational. What was our God doing before creation? I want you to look with me in John chapter 17, verse 24. Jesus is praying and he's speaking to his Father and he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. What was God doing before creation? Father, Son, and Spirit were loving one another and enjoying one another and delighting in one another. Love is natural for God. For all of eternity, God was loving. That's the fundamental nature of a triune God. So we believe, not surprisingly, three things about the triune God. There is only one God. The one and only God is also three persons, and that therefore these three persons are one God. Now, if you're a good student of the Bible, January 1, right, you open up your one-year Bible and you begin to read, and three years later, right, you're at the book of Revelation. <laughs> you, have, you finish the process, And maybe you've noticed as you've read from cover to cover that the word Trinity is never used in the Bible. Trinity was a word that was coined by Tertullian, church father. He took this Latin word meaning three and he applied it to what he saw in the scriptures because he saw three things. He saw there's one and only one God and yet the one and only God is also three persons and these three persons are just one God. And so what I'd like for us to do is we're going to go through scripture and we're going to unpack each of these three points. First is this, there is only one God. Deuteronomy chapter four or chapter six, verse four is called the great Shema. It's from the first word in this verse here. Shema means here. It means listen up, Israel, listen, because this is important. In fact, this is the central tenet of your faith. The Lord, our God, the Lord is one. This is central to the Jewish faith. You find that this theme repeated throughout the entire Old Testament. Let me give you just one other illustration. Isaiah chapter 45 says, There is no other God besides me, the Lord speaking here, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. God is one. God is one. Uh, Jesus echoed this exact same theology. Remember when he was asked, What is the first and great commandment? He quoted Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. He said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Jesus said God is one. Not surprisingly, all of the apostles continued this theology. One illustration from Paul, 1 Corinthians 8. We know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no other God but one God is one. One God. Second, the one and only God is also three persons. Now, this is a little harder to see in the Old Testament, but we begin to get echoes of it, so to speak, early. Genesis chapter 1, God says, Let us make man in our image. There have been a lot of explanations for that. Some have said, well, that's God, and he's in the, the heavenly court, and all of the angels are around him, and he says, let us make man in our image. The only problem with that is we are not made in the image of angels. We're only in the image of God. It's just an echo. It's just a hint of a Trinitarian God. Let us make man in our image. We see another hint in Psalm chapter 45, verse 6, and I want you to, to listen very carefully to what's going on in this verse. It says your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A righteous scepter, or a scepter of righteousness, is the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and you hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Now, did you pick up what's happening here in this verse? God is anointing God. Right, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Your God has anointed you, God. With the oil of gladness. What's going on here? Well, you know Jewish theologians have wrestled for centuries over this, but as Trinitarians, this is no problem for us. What's happening here? God the Father is anointing God the Son to rule over all of creation. And so there's one God and only one God, but that one God is also three persons. And they're distinct. The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. And the Father is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. And the Spirit is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit. They are three distinct persons. So look with me. John chapter 20, and verse 17. John chapter 20, verse 17. Jesus said to Mary, Mary, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Jesus says the Father is God. There's one God. God is the Father. But God is also the Son. Chapter 20, verse 27. Then Jesus said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands. Reach here with your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving, but believe. And Thomas answered and he said to him, my Lord and my God. Now that is a really, truly remarkable statement. Thomas falls down and he worships Jesus. But only God is worthy of worship, right? Even in in John's writings later in the book of Revelation, John becomes so overwhelmed by the beauty of an angel that he falls down at the angel's feet and he begins to worship and the angel says, don't do that. We don't do that around here. Get up. Something bad will happen to you and to me. No one is worshiped but God. But when Thomas falls at Jesus' feet... Jesus accepts that worship because Jesus is God. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. He is the Spirit of God. In Acts chapter 5, we see that to lie to the Spirit is the same as to lie to God because the Spirit is God, the Father is God, the Son is God. All All three are God, but they are three distinct persons. And every once in a while in the Bible, we'll see all three show up in a sense, at the same time and in the same place, Jesus' baptism is a good illustration of that. Jesus is in the water, and he comes up out of the water. And as he comes up out of the water, there's a voice. It's not his voice. It's another voice. It's a voice that comes out down out of heaven. It's the voice of God the Father speaking. And as God the Father speaks and says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, the Spirit of God, who is not the Son or the Father, descends as a dove. And we have Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons. Same place, same time, but distinct. So the one and only God is also three persons. And then third, the three persons are also one God. Before Jesus left, he gave the church a commission. We call it the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28. It says this, "'Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, "'baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son "'and the Holy Spirit.'" Do you you see the uh, grammatical error in that verse? It says, baptizing them in the name, singular, of three persons. Each person here has their own name, right? Because you're your own person. God, in a sense, as Jesus says, has has one name. That is, one shared uh, identity, personality, purpose, because God is one, but God is also three. So baptize baptize them in the name, singular, which name represents, the person, but in this case represents the three persons, but one name. So we're a great commission church. or We want to be, right? We feel like the reason God has called this church into being is that we would go and we would multiply followers of Jesus Christ. And to multiply followers of Jesus Christ, one of the things that we do is we challenge them, declare your allegiance and your alliance to the one God who has three names. So when you baptize, baptize them in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is, make followers of a Trinitarian God. It begins at the beginning of your walk with Jesus Christ. You identify yourself as unique. There is no other religion on the face of the earth that worships a Trinitarian God. Father, Son, and Spirit. Simple, right? (laughs) You know, the church has always wrestled to explain the meaning of the Trinity. Even in the 4th century, there was a a church father, Gregory of Nazanias, and and he set out to simplify the church's understanding of the Trinity, to make it accessible to the people. And so he wrote this. "'When I speak of God, you must be illuminated at once by one flash of light and by three three in individualities or hypostases or persons, but one in respect of the substance, that is, the Godhead, for they are divided without division, if I may say so, they are united in division. And we say, thank you, Gregory, right? (laughs) Kind of like my explanation of, is the Bible the word of God to my kids? Really? Gregory, that's the best you can do for us? So the church through the years has said, well, let's bring it down a little bit more. Make it a little more accessible. You know, actually, the Trinity is like an egg. Right? The Trinity is like an egg. It's one egg, but there's a shell, and there's a white, and there's a yolk. But it's one, but it's three. And we go, mmm. That just doesn't seem to work because the shell is so different from the yolk. I don't know. Well, okay, the, the Trinity is like a shamrock. It's one leaf, but it's got three leaves. unless you're lucky and then there's four, but we can't press any analogy too far, right? So the Trinity, the Trinity is like water. Water can exist as a solid or a liquid or a gas. And the Father, he's like a cold, hard solid. (laughs) Again, just leave it there, right? You heat up the Father and he becomes liquid and heat up the Son who's liquid. And yeah, the Spirit, Spirit's like vapor. That works a little better. We hear all those analogies. We go, "Mm." none of those really connect. You know why they don't connect? They're not personal. They're physical and material. They're not personal. And God is personal. So God himself has given us two analogies to work with. Marriage and the church. Marriage and the church are like, not not perfect analogies, but they're like the nature of God. Genesis chapter 2. For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife... And they shall become one flesh. The word for one used here in Genesis 1 is the same word for one in Deuteronomy chapter 6. But there are two people in marriage. Two persons distinct. So in Deuteronomy chapter 6, God is not saying that he is a mathematical singularity. He's one like husband and wife, in a sense, can be one. So what do we have in marriage? Well, we have two people. We have husband and wife. And we know that they are equal in the sight of God. Again, Genesis chapter 1, God says, Let us make man in our image. Let us make man male and female. The image of God is equally represented in both male and female. And we might argue it's most fully represented in the context of a healthy marriage. But male and female, husband and wife, are both equal in the sight of God. So there's a plurality of persons, but there's equality of personhood. And yet there are different roles and responsibilities. God made Adam first, and then he took from Adam's side and he made Eve to come alongside him and to be very different from him, but complementary to him. That's the Trinity. You have three persons: Father, Son, and Spirit. Co-equal, co-eternal. Okay? Plurality of persons, equality of their personhood, but different roles and different responsibilities. The Father sent the Son. The Son came to do the will of the Father. Having done the will of the Father, the Father and the Son sent the Spirit. The Spirit exalts the Son, so the Son can exalt the Father, so that God can be all in all. But they have different roles and responsibilities. Well, that's reflected in marriage. Second analogy is the church. 1 Corinthians 12.12. So, says, for even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. That is, we're not all one person, we're many. And yet we are intended to be one body. So plurality of personhoods, but there's equality amongst us. In Christ there's neither Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free. In other words, it doesn't matter what your race is or your gender or your social status. You are equal in the sight of God. Multiplicity, plurality of persons, equality of our nature before God. And yet we all have different roles. Some are apostles, some are prophets, some are evangelists and teachers. Some have spiritual gifts of of helping and service. And all of us submit to the authority that God has placed on earth for us, which is our elders. We have different roles, different responsibilities but all of us are one. That's a picture of the Trinity, right? Father, Son, Spirit. Three persons, equal in their nature, eternally co-equal, and yet different roles and responsibilities within the Godhead itself. Marriage, the church, those work a little better for us. Why? Because they're personal, and God is personal. This is the nature of God. That's a personal God. So not surprisingly God has revealed himself three ways God has revealed himself first as a loving father 1 John chapter 4 John wrote God is love and the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him because God is love and notice it doesn't say God is loving It says God is love, right? It could be said of me, Brian is loving. And then my kids would say, but then sometimes he's not, right? Sometimes daddy's loving, sometimes daddy's not loving. He doesn't say that about God. It says God is love. So when God acts, God is acting out of love because that is fundamental to his very nature. God is love. And the word that John uses here is the word agape, it's a word that you can hardly find before the New Testament was written. It wasn't a part of Greek literature. The New Testament writers found this rare word and they brought it into the Bible and they infused it with meaning. Because it's a different kind of love, qualitatively, that God gives toward people. I would define agape love like this. It means to delight in without the expectation or demand of reward. Okay, To, to delight in without the expectation or demand of reward, it is God's unconditional, unmerited love that he bestows upon us because of who he is, not because we deserve it, not because of anything that we've done, not because of anything wonderful in our personalities, but because this is who God is. God is outgoing. That's the nature of God. and That's the nature of love, is that it's got to go after these objects of love and draw them into an experience of a loving relationship. God is love. A couple of our friends had their first baby uh, a few weeks ago. And when that little baby girl arrived, you know what they felt? They felt love. They, could, they couldn't hold it back. Which is truly remarkable, because what does a baby bring to the family, right? <laughs> Nothing. I mean, she hadn't done anything yet. Nothing. Nothing. They just, but they just couldn't stop, but, but loving. Baby brought nothing. In fact, we could argue that new humans are takers, right? New humans, they just take, right? They take your time, all of it, all of your time. They take your sleep away. They take uh, your money. They take all your money. They just take and take. They just keep taking, right? And you pour all kinds of expensive food into them and then they, they spit it up onto the floor. Right? They take it and then they just spit it on the floor. They take it and recycle it and you put it in this expensive plastic container called a diaper and then you just take it and then you throw it in the trash. There's nothing, you just, and they're just going, take, 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 take. And you're a parent and you say, but I love them. I love them. I can't help but love. Though they have done nothing to contribute to the family. In fact, they've just taken stuff from us. But I just want to give more. That's what love is. That's who God is. So I want you to imagine for a moment, how does God feel toward you in this very moment? God loves you. And You might be a taker. You might think about your relationship with God and others, and you may say, you know what I do? I take. And I take and I take. And I'm not even often very grateful. I just am a taker. You know how God feels toward you? God loves you, not because you deserve it, not because you take relatively less than others, but because of who God is, because God is love, and that's how he feels toward you in this moment. What that means is creation was an act of love. Creation was an act of love. God didn't create because uh, he was lonely and bored. In fact, the relationships within the Trinity were actually probably pretty good and, and better before we came along. <laughs> we, kinda, we didn't really add a lot to that. Nor did God create simply because he needed to show off his power. Needed, I need to make some, some, something that can appreciate how powerful and strong I am. Which is true, God is powerful and strong, but he didn't need to show off. God created to demonstrate Love because that's who God is. Right? That's who God is. First John chapter four, verse nine, it says This by this is the love of God as the love of God is manifested in us, that God sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him, and this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. That is, he sent his son to satisfy his wrath against sin because God is love and God is holy. And so God has to hate sin. He can't help but hate sin. And because we were sinful, we were under wrath but also loved. And so he put his son in the place of our sins so that his wrath would fall on his son so that he could reconcile us into a loving relationship with him. John chapter 5, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, we were alienated toward God, we'd done nothing but be takers, Christ died for us. Or as was so beautifully quoted to us earlier, for God so loved the world. God loved the world this much. And in John's theology, the world is everything that's set against God. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life because... God is love. God is also a sacrificing son. Remember, the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father, and the Father's not the Spirit, and the Spirit's not the Father. And the Son's not the Spirit, and the Spirit's not the Son. They're three distinct persons, but they are co equal and co eternal. As it says in Hebrews chapter one, he that is the Son is the radiance of of the Father's glory. He is the exact representation of his nature. And this is where Gregory got the word uh, hypostasis, or hypostases, which means uh, that which stands underneath. In other words, if you dig all the way to the bottom of God, what do you find? You find Jesus. And you find Father. And you find Spirit. And Jesus represents, or reflects, or radiates that very nature of God. And yet, he is distinct from the Father and distinct from the Spirit, and he has a different role than each of them. John chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus said, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. That was what Jesus chose to do. He chose not to do his own will. He chose to do the will of his heavenly Father. The will of his heavenly Father was this. Son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Why did the son come? He came to do the father's will. And what was the father's will? To give and to give his life, to sacrifice, to suffer, to actually die for those whom he created. And you have to wonder, well, why did he do that? Why didn't he say, you know, father and spirit, let's cast thoughts again. Can I have a different duty? <laughs> why did he choose to do it? John chapter 14, Jesus says, So that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Why did Jesus come and die for your sins? Because he loves you? Well, yes, that's part of it. But you know, there's an even deeper reason, it's because he loves his Father. The reason Jesus died for you is because Jesus loves his Father, and he wants to make his Father happy, he wants to please his Father. And that's why he came, to do the will of the Father. First John, or John chapter 1, verse 12, says this. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. That is, the work of Jesus is this. The Heavenly Father wants to have a very large family. He wants lots of sons and daughters. So he sent his first son, his only begotten son, to pay the penalty of our sins so that the barrier of relationship could be removed. So we could be reconciled back to our Heavenly Father so that God could have a huge family. A large family. And that is what Jesus is doing. That is what what, what Jesus is longing to do, is to gather men and women into the family of God as sons and daughters. And what that means for us practically is, you were made to receive love, and you were made to give love. This, This is at the heart of who you are. You were made to receive love, and you were made to give love. Again, when Jesus was asked, what is the first and great commandment? we said, remember this, Israel... The Lord our God is one Lord. And then you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Enjoy that reciprocal relationship of love with God. Receive it from God. Give it back to God. And then there's the second commandment that's just like it. Now go and love your neighbor as yourself. Because this is what you were made to do. You were made to receive love from God, reciprocate that love, and then go and say, let me invite you also into this loving relationship with God. And so I ask you, when are you most joyful, most happy, most content in life? When you're taking or when you're giving? Well, it's a paradox, right? But Jesus said, it's more blessed, more fulfilling to give than to receive. We are actually most satisfied with our lives when we're giving. Why? Because we're made in the image of God. Right? It's a part of our nature. So we don't really believe it, and we, have, we struggle with it, and we say, oh, I don't know if that's true. I think I'll be better if I at least take some, and we begin to take and take, right? Because so I say, if I can get more, I'll be happier. I'll be more content. We become takers. And then when we take a step of faith and we relinquish that taking we begin to give suddenly we're shocked and surprised and say actually as I'm giving away I feel richer wow you know I had a moment I've only had maybe a few moments in my life where I actually really felt this and experienced it one of them was uh, right after my freshman year uh, at a and I went to Pine Cove I, I was volunteering with uh, the little kids I actually wanted to be in the big kid camp but I was assigned to the little kids, and I honestly thought, well, maybe I'll just say no, because I wanted to be at the other camp. But I said, so all right, I'll go. I don't even know if I like little kids, but all right, I'll go, I'll go to serve a summer with little kids. And as I was there, I was like, you know, I, I really I love these kids. This is fun. I mean, I had first graders and second graders and third graders and fourth graders, and I just I had a, a great great time there. And I remember after I'd had three or four cabins of kids, I was assigned to work crew. And we had this moment while I was on work crew. I remember it so vividly. I was down on my hands and knees and I was scrubbing a toilet. And, you know, third graders still don't know how to use a toilet. And so it's just nasty, right? And I'm on my hands and my knees and I'm scrubbing and the other counselors are around and we're talking and we're cleaning toilets. And I was just so happy. And I had this kind of self-aware moment. It's like, I'm, I'm loving what I'm doing right now. Now I, I can't say that it, it's lasted always. right? I don't. So don't think you're doing me a favor and call me up and say, Hey, Brian, come on over and clean my toilets. I'm just, I just want to serve you so you can have another one of those moments where you feel God. Come on. Here you go. That doesn't work. I don't even like cleaning my own toilets now. But I'm just saying there was a moment in which I, I realized I'm serving this kid, these kids. They don't know it, but it's helping their them to experience the love of Christ here at camp and with their counselors, and and I felt it. Okay. That's the image of God in you, and we'll talk about later on in the summer. You were made to receive love, you were made to give love, because God is love. A loving father, a sacrificing son, but also a serving spirit. Remember, the spirit is fully and eternally God, as is the son and as is the father. But the three have different roles and responsibilities. But one thing you never see is you don't see them reaching out and grasping in a sense for more uh, honor than the others. Particularly with the spirit, you, you see the spirit not grasping, but instead exalting the son. So the son can exalt the father not in competition with one another, but in perfect cooperation with one another, in harmony with one another. Seen it certainly in creation, Genesis 1, you see the Godhead working, but also in redemption. Titus chapter 3 illustrates this. It says, He saved us. That is the Father. God the Father. He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. Notice he says, it's, it's not... That God loved you because you deserve that love. It's not because of your deeds of righteousness. It's because of the nature of God. He's merciful. He's compassionate. He's gracious. God is love. And so on that basis, God reached into our brokenness. How? By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the spirit. That is, he's saving us by causing us to be born again. That is, born out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, the moment that we believe, we are no longer dead, spiritually separated from God, but now we're alive, reunited with God. And that's the work of the Spirit. How can the Spirit do such a thing? Well, the Spirit was poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. That is, the Spirit could come because Jesus did his job. Because Jesus loved his Father so much, he did the will of the Father, and he came and he sacrificed himself. God accepted that sacrifice, demonstrated by raising him from the dead, and then the Father and the Son sent the Spirit to do the operation of moving us out of death into life, which we receive only by faith. Why? Because we don't deserve it. Instead, we just receive it. We just say, God, thank you, thank you. Because even while I was an enemy, you were chasing after me in Jesus. In other words, salvation is not just, oh, I'm so thankful I avoided hell, right? And salvation isn't just, uh, I'm, I'm sinning less today than I was yesterday. It's not just management of your sin. Salvation is this. Salvation is entering into those relationships that exist between Father, Son, and Spirit and have existed for all of eternity because God wanted to draw you in and look with me again in john chapter 17 if you still have your place mark john chapter 17 verse 22 jesus again speaking with his heavenly father he said the glory father that you have given me i have given to them that they may be one just as we are one I and them and you and me that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and that you loved them even as you have loved me. How amazing is that? Jesus said, just as you and I loved one another and you loved me for all of eternity, that's how you love them. And the reason I came is so that they would know that and they would experience that. Verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you and these have known that you sent me. And I've made your name known to them and will make it known so that, okay, here's the purpose, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. In other words, salvation is this. It's entering into the eternal relationship that's existed between Father and Son and Spirit, which is characterized by love. Right? Okay, that's, that's why the Trinity matters. Let me give you one more quote. From Michael Reeves, he wrote, "...Father, Son, and Spirit love and enjoy each other, and created in their image we were made to love and enjoy them. Blindly and foolishly, though, we have all turned to love and enjoy other things, things that in reality are completely unable to satisfy." But the Spirit's first work is to set our desires in order to open our eyes and give us the Father's own relish for the Son and the Son's own enjoyment for the Father. This is salvation. It is entering into the loving relationships between Father, Son, and Spirit. So, practically... What do I want you to do? How do you apply this this week? Well, uh, I want you to memorize some verses. You go, oh my gosh, that's so many words. But it just looks big because it's a big font on the screen, right? It's not that much. It's only two verses. You can do this. 1 John 3, 1 and 2. It goes like this. See how great, or behold, look, imagine, meditate on this. How great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. And John says, such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. We're from a different family. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we will be, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. So I want you to memorize this. I want you to meditate upon this. I want you to enjoy this. Let this drive at least one or two of your times with the Lord this week. To think in these terms, when the child arrives in the world, we have a new human. What is that new human's job? They don't have a job yet, do they? Their job is to enjoy. Enjoy the love of the parent poured out upon the child. This week, I want you to simply enjoy because you were made to receive this love. second thing I want to challenge you to do is to give this away. You were made to receive love. You were made to give this love. So again, let's pick three people, right? So we're talking about the Trinity. Why don't you pick three? Three people that you know, don't know Jesus and haven't experienced his love and pray for them. Commit to pray for them daily. Pray for them daily. Ask God to allow you to connect with them on a spiritual level, whether it's through a conversation or an email or a phone call. Pray that God would open their hearts to enter into and receive and enjoy the love of Father, Son, and spirit. let's not keep it to ourselves. Let's pray. Father, I thank you again that you have made yourself known to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. A loving Father, a sacrificing Son, and a serving Spirit. I thank you, Father, that you have demonstrated to us that you're one who gives, and you give and you give, and you've made us in your image. And I pray, Father, that we would learn that blessedness of living as children made in your image and part of your family. I pray, Father, that you would open up moments, opportunities for us, not just to enjoy your love this week, but to share it. In the powerful name of Jesus, we ask this. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week sharing and enjoying the love of Jesus.